But as we look at these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, there are four very interesting uh, subjects that are covered. And so as we, if you'll look there for, for 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8, 9, uh, 10, and 11, that we'll look at four different subjects. Verse, so you can write this out to the side uh, to sort of outline. Verse 8, the topic is despair. You want to write that in your margin there? Verse 8, despair. Verse 9, dependence. Verse 10, deliverance. And then I had a real hard time finding a fourth D, but I got divine intercession, so I kind of cheated a little bit there, but the intercession would be what I would write down there. So despair, dependence, deliverance, and then divine intercession. Uh, these subjects are very closely tied to the life of the Apostle Paul. And I know two weeks ago we looked at the background of Corinth, and then as I was writing this sermon, I was just assuming that everybody in the room knows we talk about Paul a lot in church, don't we? You always hear the preacher say, Paul said this, Paul said this. And I can imagine that if you're not sure who Paul is, that could be a little bit confusing. So I thought maybe I should just tell a little bit about this man named Paul. Now, as I wanted to talk about Paul's life, here's, here's something else that happened recently, is Melissa was sitting at the little counter area in our kitchen uh, the other day, and she was reading a little bit ahead in our, our text. She was in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and she said, well, listen to this. She said, uh, it's chapter 3, verse 1, she said, listen to what he wrote here. Paul said, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then in verse 2, he says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And she read that. You remember we were just sitting there and we were like, how, how do you write something like that? I mean, it helps to, that you're divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. But what, what, you know, Paul didn't know that he was writing the Bible. Uh, this is Paul's personality coming through and his love for this church. This church has mistreated him that he's had a difficult time with. And yet here he is writing this beautiful language to them. And I said, she said, you know, or, or one of us said, this Paul must have, to know him, he must have been a very amazing guy, a, a wonderful Christian man. And when we think of Paul, uh, and, I, and I said, or she said that, or we were talking, I said, you know, he's also, if you read in the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what is commonly called the love chapter is considered by you know, those who study language to be some of the most beautiful language that's ever been written in the history of language. And, and so what a writer, what a way he had to communicate to these churches that he loved so much. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Uh, these are all in the form of letters. And we, so we call the letter of Paul to the Corinthians 
the letter of Paul to the Galatians or the Philippians. And you'll sometimes hear people use the word epistle. Have you all heard that before? That just means letter. So all of Paul's uh, letter, all of his books that he wrote, were in the form of letters to different churches or also to different individuals. And if you want to know more about Paul's life, where we really learn a lot about the events of Paul's life, we can piece some of it together through the letters, but the book of Acts chronicles the life of Paul and much of his ministry. He was born in a city called Tarsus in Cilicia, Cilicia which is modern-day Turkey. He was born sometime around uh, between 1 and 5 A.D., so Paul would have been roughly the age of Jesus. He was a Roman citizen. That's an important part of his story. He was raised in a household of a Pharisee, so they were, they were very conservative. Uh, they strictly followed the laws. They had not been influenced by the Greek culture, even though they were not living in Judea. But at the age of 13, Paul would have been sent to Judea to learn from a rabbi. And we know the rabbi's name. We know that Paul was trained by a very famous conservative Jewish rabbi of the day named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel also shows up in the book of Acts. Uh, whenever, uh, uh, really, whenever uh, Peter's preaching and Peter's giving a sermon and everybody wants to stone Peter and Gamaliel actually calls, calms everybody down so that there's no, no bloodshed. Paul went on to become a Pharisee uh, was probably some sort of lawyer who prosecuted people who broke the Jewish laws. He was possibly, we don't know these facts for sure, could have been a member of the Sanhedrin, or at least he was on the path to become a member of the Sanhedrin. Now you'll hear that term also used in church sometime. We talk about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 Jewish men who ruled Jewish culture. Now they were under the Roman rule, but the Romans gave them freedom to sort of exercise their own law and their own rule there in Judea. And so the Sanhedrin were sort of the rulers or, or the, the judges of Jewish life there in Judea. And if he was not a member of the Sanhedrin, he would, would, would have become one. Paul was probably well aware of the ministry of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, he had heard Christians proclaiming that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Again, he probably heard Peter preaching or some of the other apostles preaching. He was present, we know, in Acts chapter 7, whenever one of the first martyrs or the first martyr of the church named Stephen was killed for his faith. It says that as they were stoning this man Stephen after he had preached a sermon, that they came and, and Paul was approving of it, and the men who actually threw the rocks came and laid their garments for, for Paul to watch them. At this time, he was going by his Jewish name, Saul, and later on he began to use his Roman name exclusively. His name was Paul. His Roman name was Paul. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Paul was going after Christians. And what he was doing... This, this is the background of the man who winds up writing 13 books of the New Testament, is he was angry at their testimony, the Christian's testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. Their claims that Jesus was to be worshipped. It went against what he believed as a strict conservative Pharisee. And so he was going house to house, and he was dragging Christians out of their homes, 
and throwing them into prison. And he decided he was going to go hunt Christians up in Damascus. And so he asked for a letter. He said, can I get a letter that will allow me to go up here and find these Christians in Damascus and bring them back so that they can be tried or thrown into jail? And while he was there on the road to Damascus, and this is found in Acts chapter 9, it says he was on his way and he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's very interesting, isn't it? Saul was persecuting the church. And while he, as he was persecuting the church, the way Jesus considered it is when you persecute my people, you are persecuting me. He said, why do you persecute me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now then a man came to him who was told by God, uh, Ananias was told by God, go and, and pray for this man. He said, I don't want to pray for this man. He's hunting us. He's a bad, we've heard about this Saul. I don't, I'm afraid I don't want to go. But he went to him anyway, and he prayed, and scales fell off of Paul's eyes, and he became converted to Christianity. He put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he was told that he would be the apostle to the Gentiles. He would be the instrument that God would use to bring the gospel to the Gentile world and that he would suffer much. These were the promises that were made to Paul. He went on three missionary journeys. And so if you look in the back of your Bibles, usually you can see uh, one map is usually devoted to Paul's different missionary journeys. And you can kind of follow those along even as you read through the book of Acts. We believe when Paul was about 60 years old, he was killed in Rome for his faith. Uh, he was beheaded uh, during a time of persecution that was instigated by the Roman emperor Nero. So here is a thumbnail sketch of Paul's life. This letter that we're reading, 2 Corinthians, is a letter written to one of the churches that Paul started. It was located in a very important town called Corinth, modern-day Greece, a very important town economically, probably the second or third most important city, in, I, should, I should say city, not town, a city in the Roman Empire. Paul had a relationship with these people, but it was difficult. Paul had a difficult life. He was promised that he was going to suffer, and he did suffer much. Much of what this letter is about is the affliction and suffering of the apostle. So when we look at verse 8, we see those words that I mentioned earlier. Despair, dependency, deliverance. In verse 8, he begins to speak of despair. And he describes the severity of trials that he had experienced in Asia. But he also gives a word of hope. And the word of hope for those who are suffering is that even the most awful trials have a purpose. Look at what he says in verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. The idea that that word affliction carries 
in the original language is like squeezing of grapes or pressing wheat. This word affliction is used 45 times in the New Testament. It's used nine times in the letter, the second letter to the Corinthians. He says, we were afflicted. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He said, we felt there was no way out. We were burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. We had every reason to believe this is the end. Now, what was happening to him? What was the affliction? Why did they think that this was the end of their life? David Guzik suggests five possible reasons for this affliction or the description of affliction. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he had to fight with wild beasts in Ephesus. In 2 Corinthians, we learn that he received 39 stripes. He was brought before a Jewish court and he was whipped 39 times. The reason they whipped people 39 times is they thought 40 would kill you. So they would beat you so hard just to the point of death. And he describes that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There was a great riot that we read about in Acts chapter 19 where all the people dragged Paul into, the, into their theater and they all shouted for several hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Because Paul and his ministry, they had converted so many people to Christ that it was hurting the business of the idol makers. People didn't want idols whenever they knew the true God. And so they drug him in there, and that was whenever he was expelled from Ephesus. There was also a persecution in Acts chapter 20 that he mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where there was a persecution in Troas. And then we also understand from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul had a reoccurring physical problem. We don't know exactly what it was, but it's alluded to and mentioned sometimes in his letters. Could have been his eyesight or something that was going on where he physically was in distress. We don't exactly know what the suffering is, and, and I think it may be helpful in some ways that we don't know exactly what it is. But here's the truth that we can learn. It is not unusual or uncommon for Christians to despair and to be depressed. Are you a depressed person? Do you go through periods where you just don't even feel like you want to get up and take a shower? Do you struggle? Do you struggle with despair? Do you struggle with deep doubts? And you think, well, I must be doing something wrong. I'm not a very good Christian. Something's really wrong in my life. And I'll tell you that if the Apostle Paul could be despairing, if he could think this was the end, if he could say we were afflicted and we didn't think there was going to... If all he saw were dark clouds... And maybe that's all you see, you're in good company. But here's the truth about the dark clouds. Sometimes people wake up, and I don't know if I've ever experienced depression on the level of some people I've spoken with that experience depression, but it just seems like everything goes dark in their life. But remember this, believer. The darkest clouds bring the deepest mercy. The darkest clouds bring the deepest mercy. It's not a sin to be depressed and despairing. Paul's not speaking negatively about the way he reacted to these extreme circumstances. Sometimes life is overwhelming. Sometimes experiences are overwhelming. And we despair of our circumstances. And sometimes we cause those circumstances ourselves, don't we? Sometimes the way we treat people is unfair and it's hurtful and we realize it and we despair over our sin 
We despair over our habits. We despair over a sin that we have spent years and years and years and decades and decades and decades trying to eliminate this sin from our life, trying to kill and mortify this sin or this way of thinking or this habit, and we can't do it. We can't seem to change it. And we say, why? What good could come of my suffering? What good could come from these awful circumstances that I didn't ask for or cause that have entered my life? And it's precisely at this point when we're despairing of our own sin, when we're despairing of the circumstances we've created, when we're despairing of circumstances we've not created, that we must begin to to think and to speak biblically. Are you able to think Bible? Are you able to think with the mind of Christ about the circumstances and the way things are going in your life? It's the hardest thing about discipleship. It's the hardest thing for those that want to grow in their faith and become more like Christ. It's the hardest thing for those of us that want to help others and shepherd them and lead them and protect them, to feed them. It's the hardest thing about preaching to ourselves when we get up in the morning is when we will not think about things biblically, but we are just determined to think about things in the flesh. I have a book, and I, and I, I learned this this week, and it's just been as I was reading from one of my classes, and I, it's just one of those things. It just gives you an example. You know, I, I can't keep 20 things in my head at once, but I can keep one thing in my head most of the time. <laughs> and this is the one thing I read this week that I just haven't been able to get over, and I'm, I want to share it with you. I was reading a book for one of my classes, and it was talking about a, a married couple that was having trouble. And this married couple, they were, they were going at it every day, angry with one another, saying things that would hurt for years and years and years, not loving one another, not, not behaving in the way that spouses should or even that they wanted to. And these were both believers. These are Christian people having this very catty marriage where they're just always attacking. And so the, the husband came and sat down with the pastor. And the pastor he said, his name was Tom in the book, he said, Tom, can I, can I read you something from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2? He said, okay. Listen to what he read this man, who his wife, always at each other's throats, listen to what he read him. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, there's the gospel, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by the righteousness of Christ. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so he read that man that passage and he said, Tom, I know your wife, when she attacks you, you you want to retaliate. When she attacks you, you don't want to say anything kind to her. He said, what does this scripture say to you? How does it teach you how to think biblically about your marriage? And he said, well, it says there that Jesus, when he was attacked, he didn't say anything. He didn't retaliate but I'm not Jesus. 
And he said, wait a minute, brother. Look back at the first sentence of that passage I read to you. It says, for to this you have been called. Our calling, because he's, Peter says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. So if I'm going to think biblically about a relationship that's difficult, if I'm going to think biblically about a circumstance that I'm facing, I can apply this, can't I? I'm going to walk through this following the example of Jesus. Why? Because as a Christian, that's my calling. That's my calling. That's an example of thinking biblically. The point of my marriage is not to make me happy, but the point of my marriage, if I'm thinking biblically, is to make me holy. The point of my marriage is not that Melissa can meet my needs, but so I can live out the gospel and be Christ to my wife so she will find Christ more precious. This is my calling to follow in his steps. You see, that kind of thinking turns the way everybody talks about marriage on its head. And I'm not talking about a, a, a tolerating abuse or physical violence. Of course, when that's happening, we do other things. And you need to tell someone. and You need to call the police if someone hurts you. But I'm talking about the normal patterns of most marriages where we just hurt one another all the time. And we're not seeking to live for Christ, but we're living for ourselves. And that's what the point of all this is. That's the key verse here we're coming up on in verse 9. So we've talked about despair, now we talk about dependence. Look at verse 9. This will be the key truth of this passage. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, he says. We thought it was over. It, it, Paul says it was just as though a court was calling us guilty and was leading us off to execution. But here he says the purpose in the next sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Literally, this happened that we would trust upon God. John Bunyan said it this way, that we would live upon God that is invisible and count ourselves dead to everything else. We despaired of life. It was the death sentence for us. And the reason we got to that point where everything seemed lost is so that we could see that Christ is everything. That we could live upon God. The point of the affliction, the burden, the despair, the sentence of death was so that they would trust in God and not trust in themselves. When we are most helpless, we are also most dependent. Have you found that to be true in your life? And the moment where you felt the most helpless, when you got the news, when you got the diagnosis, when the doctor came out and said, there's nothing else we can do, when you were the most helpless, you were also the most dependent upon the Lord. It's a strange thing. You would think that at those times we would run away from God and say, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. But it's something in our spirit as believers that we run to Him because we know He's the rock. He's the only one we can trust. God teaches us to trust Him. That's the line you should underline in this passage. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That key component of the Gospel. This is where the Gospel comes into view. The resurrection. 
If God can raise the dead, I know I can trust Him to raise me. He'll raise me up out of this suffering now, and if He doesn't, He'll raise me up in the life to come. That's how we learn to trust in the Lord. In the Gospel, we're trusting that that we can trust in Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin. But we know as believers, our testimony is, He can also rescue us in a million other ways. That's why the Gospel song says, as we go through this life, I'm learning to lean. What God is doing through all of your circumstances teaching you to learn how to lean. Learning to lean on Jesus. And when you do that, the song says, finding more power than I ever dreamed. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. And what did Paul learn about the Lord? He learned he was a deliverer. And that he could hope in Him. Look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. He's done it, and He'll do it again. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again, says the Apostle. Have you ever met someone who's been delivered? When it seemed hopeless, and God brought them through? We lived in Nashville for several years, and uh, we were trying to sing and write songs and all that, but we wound up also working at a church. So one summer, I was a youth minister at this church, and we went outside, and there were all these, these guys sitting under trees, uh, you know, along the side of our church. And we went out there, and it didn't take long. We realized, okay, these, these guys are not from America. Uh, they were very, very tall uh, black men with very dark skin. Um, they were all had very short hair, and they talked with very thick accents. And so we said, where are you all from? Who are you guys? And their English was very good. And they were Sudanese men, all very young. Some of them were just teenagers. And they were called the Lost Boys of Sudan. They had been involved, their, their countries had been involved in a brutal civil war. They were young boys and they fled. And the army would chase them down and just pick them off with machine guns. And some of them could show us the bullet wounds that were in their body. And so we got to know these guys. It was really interesting uh, to take them like, to a Walmart for the first time. And we walked into Walmart and they, they would say, who owns all these shops? <laughs> We say, one guy owns all this. One guy owns every single one of these shops. The men's clothes, the women's clothes, the underwear. But in their mind, they were used to everything was a tiny little shop. And they could not believe the scale of Walmart. They, didn't, uh, they would run a little bit of bath water. And then they would, uh, they would sit in the tub with about an inch of water. And they would just kind of pour a bucket over their head. And I said, here, watch this. And I turned the shower on. And they whoa, what is this? You know, they were learning all these things about America. And they would come to church with us, and they were uh, the sweetest boys. There was one who was about 14, but they had all given them, didn't they? They said they, said, they didn't know any of, the, when any of their birthdays were, and so they just said they were all born on January 1st, 1980. So they were all 21. <laughs> and so there was, there was like a kid who was clearly a 14-year-old. It was like, he was like, it was like I'm 14. It's like, well, your, your ID says you're 21. So uh, there's a lot of 14-year-olds in this country that would die to get that ID, but uh, you got it. So they were sweet, sweet boys. 
Well, we learned more about them, their story as, as you know, time went on. Uh, we didn't know a lot of the Catholic charities that brought them over and so forth, and it brought over thousands of them to the United States, actually. And so there was a National Geographic article that was done uh, on one of the boys who had a similar story to the ones that we knew. And he said, this is what the, the man interviewed said, he said, Americans believe in God. Now listen to this, it's a real indictment. He said, Americans believe in God, but they don't know what God can do. They believe in God, but they don't know what God can do. Maybe one of the reasons we don't trust in the Lord to deliver us is because we try to work it out ourselves. We try to manipulate the circumstances. We try to rely on ourselves to deliver ourselves. And here's the question we ask. Because we have so much confidence in ourselves, we say, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about I say it all week. What are we going to do about this? Melissa, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? What should we say? This is hard, but, but, but what if we said, I wonder what God's going to do about this? I wonder how the Father's going to work in this circumstance and get glory out of it. How is God going to teach him to trust us in this circumstance? Some of y'all are gardeners. I wish I was patient like a gardener. The gardener has a duty. The gardener tills, the gardener plants, the gardener tends, the gardener waters. But the gardener knows one thing that I have a hard time with in the patient department, is God's got to give the harvest. So I'll go out there every day and even like dig a little bit and see if it's growing, right? That's not how it works. We've got to be patient like a gardener in our circumstances. We've got to be patient in our despair. We've got to be steadfast in our dependence so that God might deliver us. Which leads us to our last point, intercession. Do you believe God can move through prayer? You know, we want to run and try to fix the circumstance. And what the Bible is urging us to do over and over is not to go and do things in our own strength, but to go to the Lord and say, I'm laying this before you. Do we believe that God can move through prayer? I read this book. It is called The Power of Prayer. And this is written at the time where they gave these really interesting titles that would never fly at Mardell now, right? Here's what it's called. The Power of Prayer, illustrated in the wonderful displays of divine grace at the Fulton Street and other meetings in New York elsewhere and elsewhere in 1857 and 1858. I know that title really pops. Uh, so this is a very old book. It was written before the Civil War, or, or maybe just after it. And... The, the, the interesting thing about it, it's almost like they just photocopied the pages and printed the book back up. And Lori, I don't know if you'll have this at the library, but I'll give you a copy if anybody wants to go check it out. But this is about a revival that took place in 1857 and 1858, right before the Civil War started around New York City, where people just started gathering in prayer meetings. And the stories in this book will just make your soul fly. I don't know how to explain. You'll laugh and you just won't believe what God did when people decided they wanted to start praying for people. And the most amazing stories I've ever read are in this book about the way God moved in the most unusual and wild ways whenever people, new people were praying and they would say, will you pre please pray for my son? And, and there's one story in there that I just remember off the top of my head where they're all sitting in this meeting and they would read the requests. And so they wouldn't read the requests and then pray. They would read one request 
And then someone would stand up and pray for that one request. And, and, and they, they read one request, and the man stood up and he said, I'll pray for that one. And then after the man stood up and prayed, another man stood up and said, my mom sent that in. That's me, and I'm giving my heart to Christ. He got saved in the very meeting where they prayed for him. And there's all sorts of things like that in the book. It's just an amazing movement of God. And it's an old book, and that language is flowery. But man, it, it causes you to understand what Paul's talking about here in verse 11, where he says, you must also help us by prayer. If there's anybody I would say doesn't need help, it would be Paul. But Paul's asking for help. So how much more do we need help? He says, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. That's amazing that we can pray and that people will give thanks and receive blessings. Paul considered his ministry to be fueled by prayer. We're going to change our prayer meeting Wednesday. I, wanna, I know I'm going a little long, but I'm sorry, but I feel good. Don't worry about me. Uh, <laughs> Y'all are all sitting down. <laughs> I want to teach Team Kid because I, I, I want to share the gospel with you. I mean, there's evangelism going on right there in our Team Kid. So I want to I be a part of that evangelism ministry to parents and kids. But I also want to go to prayer meeting. So I guess I accommodated myself. I guess that's one of the benefits of being the leader. Uh, we're going to pray at 5.30. We're going to come in. I'm going to share a five-minute devotional prayer prompt. We're going to break up into groups of three to five, go throughout the building. So if you're working in Team Kid, you can come to prayer meeting. We're doing the meal differently this year. But you show up at 5.30. We'll pray. We'll take our list, groups of three to five. So we're not just, so, so everybody's getting a chance to be active in the prayer meeting. We'll pray for people. Uh, spend more time praying than even we do now. And then when we're done, some people can go work in Team Kid. Deacons can come. It's amazing. Deacons have actually been known to come to prayer meeting. Deacons can come. Uh, okay, that didn't really go over very well. <laughs> so so uh, deacons can come, and we'll give you guys like a sheet where you can take, uh, go see shut-ins, go see people that, have, that need a visit. And so we'll just do ministry on that night. But the point I'm trying to make here is that prayer can change things. The Bible tells us that there are blessings that are granted through the prayers of many. So I wonder what blessings are out there that we're not seeing because we're not a praying people. Who might be saved? Who might be pulled back from backsliding? You know, and this is something to think about. You know what would happen whenever I was a kid in church? Is that whenever we would sing the last song, you know what people would do? They would come up here. They would get out of their seat. They would come down here and they would kneel. And they wouldn't stay there for 30 minutes. They might stay there for 45 seconds. But maybe somebody would come down and, and, and someone knew they're burdened or they're troubled. And sometimes people would come down just to pray because God has spoke to their heart. But sometimes someone would come down there because they were afflicted and despairing. And you know what somebody would do? Someone else would see them and they would go follow them down there. And they wouldn't say a word to them. They'd just put their hand on their back. Did that happen in your church? I know that happened here. They'd put their hand on their back and say, pray for them. Wouldn't even say a word. Then they'd both get up and go back to their seat. That's the kind of prayer I'm talking about. The kind of prayer where you pray for someone and you ask God to intervene. 
You ask God to give them a blessing. It wouldn't hurt for us to move like that these days. We don't want to be the frozen chosen, do we? We want to have a living and dynamic faith. We're going to trust that God can speak to us in this service in a way where we might even move our feet to show that we've been touched in our heart or that we could show love for one another. So you feel free to come to this altar. We don't usually, I call it a platform. But in the past, when I was a kid, we called it coming to the altar. Because you know what you do at an altar? You give things to God. You give it to the Lord. And the sacrifice that we put on the altar is a living sacrifice. So you come during the response time just to move if the Lord touches your heart. And I'll close with this. When we despair... When we depend, when we are delivered, when we see God intervening, it must always serve to put our eyes and our focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When you suffer in despair, remember this. Because I can look out here and I know there's people that struggling. I know that struggle. And that you are struggling. When you suffer, remember, you're not walking anywhere Jesus hasn't walked. All right? We go hunting with Lonnie. He gets us on these mules, and I think, all right, I'm going to break my arms. I'm not going to be able to play guitar. You know, we, you know, and then, then he hands me a knife and tells me to kill a pig. Uh, and I scream bloody murder, and I go at it, just release all my frustrations. But as we're on those mules going through the woods, Lonnie is the leader. He's, he's, the, he's the one that, if you lose Lonnie, you're in trouble. That's all I know. I keep a close eye on you when we're out there. Because like, if, I, if I get left out here, I don't know how to survive. Lonnie does. So we're following Lonnie out there, and Lonnie's in the best mule, and he's in the first position, and what he's doing, as we go through the woods, he'll see a branch. He knows it's going to hit me in the face, because I'm a greenhorn or whatever. And so he snaps it off, and he throws it on the ground. And, we, and, and the whole time, he's, he'll hold the branch for you, he'll snap it off, and I follow his trail, and it's a bunch of twigs that have been snapped off and broken. That tells me Lonnie's been there. Listen to this quote by Alex McLaren. as a contemporary of Spurgeon. He said, when we're journeying through the murky night, through the dark woods of affliction and sorrow, we find here a spray broken, a leafy stem bent down with the tread of his foot and the brush of his hand as he passed by, speaking of Jesus, to remember the path that he trod has been hallowed, and thus to find lingering fragrance and hidden strength in the remembrance of him who in all points was tempted just as we are, bearing grief for us, bearing grief with us, bearing grief like us. What is it saying? Just like Lonnie goes ahead and snaps all those branches off. When I'm suffering, I can see those snap branches. And I know this, Jesus has been here. I'm not going through anything. I can tell Jesus all my sorrows because he knows exactly how I feel. That's what a friend we have in Jesus. So whenever you're despairing, you depend upon him. He will deliver you by the power of God. That's our promise. Will you trust him today? Let's bow for a word of prayer.